All right, great. Um, yeah, this is the last Friday for Beacon, and I kind of wish Pastor Francis actually spoke instead of me, but um, I get the privilege of being able to speak for us tonight um, indefinitely last Friday. Um, to prepare our hearts for our transition to ministry on Sundays, um, we are covering a few topics. And one was what Francis talked about last week, remembering our leaders from Hebrews 13. We wanna be shepherded for our own good. Uh, we wanna be known by, yes, the church, uh, but also the church leaders. Um, and that doesn't just mean pastors, but in varying degrees of leadership, including your small group leaders and beacon staffers. And we wanna make it a joy for our leaders and pastors to watch over our souls. That's what we talked about last week. And tonight to further prepare our hearts, uh, we're gonna spend some time thinking about the shape of gospel love, the shape of gospel love. And as Francis mentioned last week, uh, we're not just talking about these topics because of this big change for our college ministry. Um, these topics really are what we need in the day-to-day -day of ordinary Christian living. And so tonight we wanna fine tune our understanding of love and we wanna grow in gospel love. And the nature of the church is that as we grow, as each of us grow in gospel love for one another, that's when we see more of God's love for us through one another, his people. And so that's part of the reason why we want to do this. If you missed last week, Francis explained the reasons for this change to meeting on Sundays. We're not just changing things for the sake of doing something new or novel, uh, but we're changing because we believe this will help us reach more college students at Lighthouse. Or we want, we want to create more opportunities for you guys right now to, to cross paths with more people at Lighthouse. And I know that as leadership, we wanna help think how we can best facilitate that intermingling uh, with the rest of the church body. And also we wanna free you up as well to serve um, and also get involved in other ways, whether it's serving in the youth group on Friday nights, joining a small group or informally serving through babysitting other ways as well. But again, um, switching to Sunday doesn't mean these things will automatically happen, right? Uh, we need gospel love to both motivate us and then to direct us to love the way Christ loves. And that's why we need um, to spend some time tonight uh, to let the love of Christ change us because we know that in our natural state, uh, we are loveless people. Our inward bent towards self-preservation, towards self-protection, towards selfishness, to do what is most comfortable, to avoid things that stretch us in love. That is, that is who we are in our natural state. So that's why we wanna spend some time um, it, thinking deeply about the love of Christ and how that shapes how we love. And so that's the main idea uh, you can see in your notes there. The main idea of our message tonight is that we get to grow in love and know more of his love by serving the way Christ has served us. We'll see this in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. In this chapter, I've, I've chosen this chapter because of two reasons. 
One is that in this chapter, we see a shocking and a powerful display of Christ as a servant. He's washing his disciples' feet. But even this act of love is intended to point to a far more shocking display of God's love for us on the cross. And second, second reason why I wanted to choose this passage is that love is not an amorphous, shapeless, abstract thing. Jesus shows us how to love. And this one chapter says a lot about the shape of gospel love. Okay, first, what, what do we mean by gospel love? Well, we wanna start with a baseline. And so I gave you a definition there. It's a definition of love that we've used here at Lighthouse, even from the pulpit, an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person that seeks the highest good, even at cost to self. You know, it's a commitment. It's a resolve to love. It's a choice. It's not based on whether the other person loves you back. It's not based on whether the other person reciprocates your love. It's, it's to an imperfect sinner, a sinner who will disappoint you, sin against you, hurt you, but you are seeking their highest good, which is that they would know God. Even if that means it costs you, your time, energy, your resources, your reputation. And this is the love that Christ has shown us. Okay, so that's where we're starting. And the aim of this message is to give shape to that even further. So I've drawn out five strands of gospel love that will help shape our love for one another. And can you see that those five um, principles of God's love in your notes there? And so as we work through John chapter 13, it's, it's a big chunk. And so we're not gonna go through all the verses. Um, it's gonna be a broad sweep and I'm only gonna highlight a few verses. And so as, as we work through that, let's examine where in our lives love needs to be fine-tuned to be the shape of gospel love. So let's pray uh, for God's blessing on our time. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word that shows us how we're meant to live. And thank you, God, that you not only show us how we fall short, but that you give us hope because of your love through Christ in the spirit for us. And therefore, God, you produce this kind of holy, heavenly, otherworldly love through us. And God, we want to see more of that, Lord. We want to see Christ keep changing us. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us even now through the message. Would you bless it to your glory in your son's name? Amen. Amen. Um, so if you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. <clears throat> so I'll, I'll give a quick overview of what's taking place here in this chapter. So John chapter 13, it takes place in the last evening before Jesus dies. So this is within the last 24 hours of his earthly life before death. 
And so Jesus here is washing the disciples' feet and then he predicts his betrayal by Judas. And then he begins what's called the upper room discourse. And this is when he's preparing his disciples for his departure. And he's doing that to strengthen their faith when he dies, when he departs. All right, so let's look at the first strand of gospel love. I've phrased it this way. Love thinks of others when it is inconvenient. Love thinks of others when it is inconvenient. John chapter 13, verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. When Jesus knew that his hour had come. So what is this hour? And up to this point in the gospel of John, Jesus had been saying that his hour had not yet come. Back in chapter two, verse four, at the wedding in Cana, when Jesus turned water to wine, he said, my hour has not yet come. Chapter seven, verse six, Jesus is in Galilee, which is the Northern part of Israel, instead of in Judah, because the Jews were already seeking to kill him. And so Jesus tells his brothers, his blood brothers, my time is not yet here. But finally, we come to this place in chapter 13, where Jesus knows that his hour has come. And while on the one hand, this is a long anticipated, even eager and exciting prospect, right? Because it says uh, that he would depart out of this world to the father, right? He's going to God, the father. Yet on the other hand, this is a, a terrifying prospect. And just a chapter earlier, chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus said, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And the way he describes glorified in the next verse is his death. He's talking about his death. And so it's not just his physical death. The the unseen spiritual horror of his death is so terrifying that Jesus would say in chapter 12, verse 27, my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. It's the hour to take a hold of the cup of the fury of God's wrath. He has come. Jesus has come to drink it down to the dregs for us. So we can't miss the weight of the immense burden that Christ is carrying at this moment in the beginning of chapter 13. It is exactly at this point when he is weighed down with heavy anticipation that's looming ahead. We see Jesus demonstrating Philippians 2.3. In humility, Jesus is counting others more significant than himself. It would have been perfectly reasonable given the unspeakable duress of what he's about to endure. Jesus could have retreated He could have isolated himself. He could have kept to himself without being bothered by anyone. I mean, he's already perfectly loved everyone to this point in his life. He's specifically loved his own disciples in the last three years of life together. And the disciples even then don't really get it. 
that the Messiah has to die. And in these last moments, the disciples aren't gonna comfort him. And it's gonna take work to patiently care for them. And yet what does Jesus do? In his imminent death, instead of being comforted by his disciples, Jesus is the one who comforts them, preparing them for when he's gonna leave them and die. Jesus is committed to love his own, his disciples to the very end of his life. And this is gospel love. Even when it is inconvenient, we consider the interests of others. Now there will always be times when it is inconvenient for you and I to love. And this doesn't mean we say yes to everything, right? Every opportunity, and that's a different issue uh, because whatever you're giving your time to may very well be an expression of love. You could say, I'm sorry, I have to blank, right? Study for an exam, or I'm sorry, I'm behind on some assignments. I'm sorry, I have a previous commitment. But this forces, it, it challenges us because it has to mean God in this moment when I am inconvenienced, is this an opportunity for me to love? So when is it inconvenient for you to love? Uh, For myself, uh, one thing, one area that comes to my mind is uh, the way I think about how I'm productive in the day. It's, it's my mornings are my most optimal time to work. Um, I don't know how it is for you, but um, I feel most productive in the morning, fresh and alert. Uh, and so I try to reserve my most mentally strenuous work for that time, like sermon writing. I don't always do it, but um, I try to do that in the morning, right? So when there's a pressing matter that's important and also are urgent and important and that needs attention. And, and it would be a loving thing for me to do. Um, honestly, for me, it can be hard to give that up because I'm thinking in my mind, well, in the afternoon, I'm not as productive. I get sleepy, you know, I'm not as alert and I definitely won't be as fruitful at night. And so it can be a struggle for me. Uh, even if I choose to go through that act of love in my heart, Um, instead of joy, I can be grumbling. It's more about how much I've given up instead of how is this person being loved? That's that's my struggle. And what what I need to remember that is that love is an act of faith. Can I trust God with the things that I set out to do today, but didn't get to do? Can I entrust to him what I didn't get to finish and still have a clear conscience before the Lord and say, I have sought to love you, God, sought to be faithful in love. And I I will not at all have loved perfectly, right? But I can trust that God knows whether I have sought to love today. And that's ultimately what matters. And so when is it inconvenient for you to love? Um, maybe when you're working on homework uh, or starting for an exam and a friend who doesn't often ask for help, he, he, he or she seems to be in need and asks if you can talk. Uh, or maybe 
Um, it's just when you're on your phone or laptop in the middle of watching something fun and there's an opportunity to love or maybe in a, in a social situation, you start to feel out of place and uncomfortable and you just want to get out of the situation. Could be when you enter a room full of people who know each other, but you don't know anyone. It could be when you're talking with someone and you have to work hard to keep that conversation going or that topic doesn't particularly interest you. It becomes inconvenient to love. Maybe it's the choice to sit next to friends like you always do or sit next to someone you don't know. Maybe it's the choice to work on homework or go to church on a Sunday. What would it look like in any of those situations to be committed to love those around you. Now let's move on to our second point. A love thinks of others and then moves to action. So the second point, love moves toward others to serve, listen, and share our heart. I'm gonna read uh, chapter 13, verses two to five. Verse two, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, I want to note here that John spends the first three verses, verses one to three, talking about what Jesus knew. Now, why would John tell us what Jesus knows? Because he could have just went straight to the action of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. But he doesn't do that. He informs us what Jesus knows because the context brings weight to what's happening. In verse one, Jesus knew. Verse three, knowing blank. What does he know? Jesus knows these are the final hours of his life. Jesus knows, we read in the re- as we read in the rest of the narrative, he knows that he's going to be betrayed by someone close to him. Jesus knows that all of his disciples are going to scatter in a matter of hours and leave him alone. Jesus knows that he will bear the sins of the world and suffer the wrath of God. Knowing all of this, Jesus chooses not to despair. He chooses not to run away. He chooses not to misuse his power for his own gain. He chooses to love. He is resolved, resolved to humbly submit to the Father's will to glorify God. So this is the backdrop to the action of Jesus washing their feet. And note specifically in verse three, what Jesus knows there is he says, it says, Jesus knows that the father had given all things into his hands. And so how does Jesus use his power, authority, privilege, blessings there? I mean, you would expect that Jesus would defeat the devil and condemn Judas with divine wrath with flashy, awesome display of power. I mean, he could have summoned tens of thousands of angels 
and wiped out his enemies. But what does he do? The master, the Lord, takes on the dress of a slave and he performs the task reserved for the lowliest of a household slave and to wash the dirty feet of his disciples, including the feet of his betrayer, Judas. I mean, this is shocking. He is breaking social customs. Never does a a superior in that day do such a thing for someone socially lower. And understandably, as as this is going on, as Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, I'm sure in that room, there was some embarrassed silence. You know, everyone there, the disciples, they're likely thinking the same thing. They're thinking, what is Jesus doing? If there's anyone who should be washing our feet, it's, it's one of us, not him. And Peter voices what are on people's minds. He says in verse six, Lord, do you wash my feet? And there's an emphasis there in in you. Do you, Lord, wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, verse seven, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. There's something more going on than just this outward physical act of foot washing. And Peter responds and Peter, you know, his how he usually responds, verse eight, you shall never wash my feet, right? It's this extreme response as we know Peter to be. But does Jesus cut him off? No, right? We, we read in that section from verse seven to 11, Jesus engages in a dialogue with Peter. I mean, Jesus could have just shut him down. Jesus could have just started teaching, made his main point like he does in verses 12 to 17. But he takes time, right? Jesus listens. He's listening to Peter's questions, concerns, requests. Jesus engages Peter. And Christ is patient with Peter and by extension, his disciples. And as Christ teaches by conversation with Peter, by direct instruction to his disciples and by the example physically washing their feet, we learn that this act of foot washing, it's really pointing to something greater, a greater act of humble love, of Christ laying his life down for us at the cross. That's what the foot washing is pointing to. And this is the kind of love that we as his followers are to show one another, that we would also lay down our lives for one another. So not only does Jesus here move toward the disciples to to serve physically, tangibly, to listen, but Jesus also shares his heart with them. He talks about something close to his heart, something personal, his own betrayal. In verse 18, uh, he quotes David in a Psalm, David who's betrayed by someone close to him, someone David has shared bread with. Now, uh, it is no small thing to share a meal in first century Jewish culture. And that's why the the Pharisees were upset that Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors because social gatherings, particularly meals, they signified something. They, They showed approval and equality. And so 
Jesus here was being vulnerable when he shared about his upcoming betrayal. And yes, like he shared that um, he would be betrayed by Judas to prepare his disciples, right? So that they would know this isn't an oversight on his part. It's not like he didn't know that this was coming. Uh, he's not caught off guard, but still it's something personal to him that he shares. He opens his heart with his disciples. And so we see here, Jesus moves toward his own, his disciples to serve, listen, and share his heart with them. Now, as I mentioned earlier, and um, Francis said this last week as well, as we move from Fridays to Sundays for Beacon, this doesn't mean that we're automatically more integrated into the life of the church body. And it takes us moving toward others. And honestly, many of you are already doing that uh, commendably. Um, And so I'm just standing here saying, excel still more. Um, But the temptation with any change, um, with any new surrounding uh, is to wait, to wait for people to come talk to us, wait for someone to reach out to you. And in our case, wait for older working adults to come talk to you. And this will be true of any season of your life, when you transition out of college to a young adult ministry, or when you move to a different city and attend a different church, the temptation will always be to think, oh, I'm new here and I don't know too many people, so they should come talk to me. They should make me feel welcome. They should invite me over to their hangouts, events, and their homes. But if that's the only thought we have, where is this line of thinking directed? Who is the focus? Whose comfort am I most concerned with? The posture of gospel love is is first about us moving toward others than it is about waiting for others to move toward us. And so let me speak to those who find it hard uh, to, to be in social settings, maybe who feel like they're more introverted, or to those who feel like social settings make you really tired or you consider yourself, you're not a group person. Um, You know, I put myself in this category. You know, I'm not particularly a group person. I find group conversations to be hard. Um, Group hangouts are fine, but um, I was like that in college as well. Um, I tend to be a solo kind of guy and I had to work through that. I'm still working on it. Um, and that's my tendency. Like even now at Lighthouse, I, I like to go back to the CM room because that's when I can be alone and focus, you know? Um, and so I have to constantly think, how can I be moving toward people in love? <clears throat> and so whatever you make of your personality, one thing we know for sure is that we cannot use our personality as an excuse to not love, right? Part of growing in love is to not be so controlled by what people think of you. It means learning to both enjoy light conversations and not being afraid of deeper ones. It means trying to connect with someone who's not like you. It means Um, not just thinking about and talking about what's interesting to you, but showing interest in what they're thinking about. 
asking how their day was, week was, their plans for the weekend, caring about how they're doing. It also means being open to sharing something of what's on your heart. And this is the picture of gospel love. And next weekend is a great opportunity to demonstrate this kind of love. I mean, we're gonna be with Praxis and I'm not sure what your expectations are going into retreat, but there are a lot of newer people in Praxis. I mean, so we would love for older brothers and sisters to befriend you guys, right? College students, that they would pursue you, that they would have a relationship with you, friendships with you, and then maybe even possibly disciple you. Uh, but Beacon, even if you feel like you're newer, this is a great opportunity for us not to have the mentality of I'm here to receive, but no, let me move toward them, you know? And if there's a chance to get to mingle with them, Praxis, get to know them. With that said, uh, we do need to address the reality of the risk of pursuing others in love. And there is always a risk to love. Um, And the reality is that when you pursue others in love, it is inevitable that over time, there will be misunderstanding. You will get hurt, guaranteed. You will unintentionally hurt others. You'll feel wronged, rejected, that you're putting in the work, but it's not being reciprocated. And then some people will feel the same way about you. But gospel love takes these risks. That's our third point. Love risks hurt, humiliation, and rejection. Verse 21 says this, after saying these things, namely about Jesus being betrayed, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, there aren't many times the, the, the author, John, indicates that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. We've already seen back in chapter 12, verse 27, when Jesus considered his death um, in the hour to come, that Jesus became troubled. We see also a little earlier in 11, chapter 11, when Lazarus died, Jesus saw Mary weeping. Mary is Lazarus' sister. Um, and then he saw the Jews who had come with Mary also weeping. And then it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. That is is our savior. Uh, Jesus is not aloof to pain. He, He is not detached or unengaged from the sorrow that comes from his friend's death, from Lazarus's death. He is, he is moved to weep over what sin does, the death that it brings. And so it is with our passage in in Jesus's relationship with uh, Judas. Jesus is not stoic about Judas betraying him. He he doesn't say, oh, I don't care. You know, I'm not affected. Oh, that doesn't hurt. No, that's three years of ministry and life together. There is a level of investment, uh, love poured into him. So Jesus is troubled in his spirit. But this doesn't mean either that Jesus becomes vindictive and vengeful toward the one who betrays him. 
And Jesus gives him one final gesture of love. He dips the morsel and gives it to Judas to identify the betrayer. Uh, betrayer. <laughs> and instead of that act of love softening Judas's heart, it hardens his resolve to betray Jesus. And the Lord, the Lord lets him go, right? The Lord says to him in verse 27, what you do, do quickly. Now, Jesus knew this was going to happen. It was to fulfill scripture that he would be betrayed, but this did not prevent him from investing in Judas the last three years and at this point, washing his feet. Now you might think, was, was all that effort wasted to love this person? It wasn't, right? Jesus knew this was his mission. And this is his whole, this is the life of Jesus, the story of Jesus from the very beginning. John 1, 11, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He was on the path of love, which is the path of hurt, humiliation, and rejection. And this is not only by the world, but is also from the people that he poured into. Now let's think about this for ourselves. Um, I mean, this covers a range of discomfort and negative feelings. There are degrees of humiliation from the small to the big. What are we risking when we love? You know, for the small, for example, in social situations, you risk sounding like a fool, like you don't know something. You risk being awkward, saying something weird. You risk not knowing what to talk about, right? And then there are bigger risks. I mean, you risk in a friendship being hurt. You risk being misunderstood. You risk your effort and intentionality not being reciprocated. And this doesn't mean that when you are hurt, you continue to be trampled on, or this doesn't mean you bear it until you're at the breaking point. Love may mean that you need to bring it up gently with this person, right? For the person's benefit. But even that is a risk, right? Because if you think about bringing it up, it might get messier. You may not have communicated it well. He or she may not receive it well. You may have misunderstood the issue. They might have some words for you and say, you've, you've taken ownership of your own sin and misunderstanding, but after you've done your part, loving the person, communicating his or her offense against you, and you see that there's no attempt on their part to really confess, repent, restore the relationship, you may have to let the person go. You've moved toward the other person with the intent to help, but ultimately you respect the other person's choice. You don't control them. Now that is the risk of love. And that is what we see in Christ and how he demonstrates his love to his disciples, to Judas. Christ's love for others wasn't based on how they treated him. It wasn't based on how they loved him. It was ultimately based on his love for God. And that's our fourth point here. Why did Christ love his enemies? Even Judas was ultimately because love doesn't end with people. It ends with God. <clears throat> Verse 31, 
says this, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. So was the son of man humiliated? Was he trampled on? Yes, right? In the greatest possible way. So how can Christ being humiliated and shamed at the cross at the same time be conceived as him being glorified, like it says here? Well, the son of man is glorified at the cross because his infinite worth is seen in the complete satisfaction of his sacrifice. He is the spotless, perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is how he is glorified and at the same time shamed. Now, how is God the father glorified in the son? Well, God is glorified by the son's complete obedience to him and also by the display of God's perfect righteousness, both his justice in the punishment of sin and his mercy to forgive sinners through the cross. God is glorified because the world now sees God's self-giving love, that God will give his son for his enemies. And that is how God is glorified. And Jesus is able to love Peter, his disciples, Judas, his enemies, us, because Jesus wants God to be glorified. Now, uh, there's this song that you might be familiar with. It's called Above All, and maybe you've sung it at church. Um, I think people in my generation might know it more. I don't know if you guys do, but part of the chorus goes like this. It talks about Christ and his crucifixion. Like a rose trampled on the ground, he took the fall and thought of me above all. You guys know the song? How many of you? Okay, wow, all right. All right, Um, that's good if you know it. So what I appreciate about this song and and that line in particular is, is the personal nature, right? Of Christ's love for us. This isn't just Christ loves in general. This is no, Christ loved me, right? He, he laid his life down for me. Uh, Ruthann and I know someone who, um, when he shares his testimony of salvation, of how he came to know the Lord, he talks about the Lord using this song. Um, and there were other means of grace in his life leading up to his moment of conversion, but he was at a Michael W. Smith concert and this song is what God used to open his eyes and give, gave him faith. And so I just want to say at the outset, I'm not speaking against that, right? But we do want to be careful and accurate and clear with what we say. Now, I, when Jesus died on that cross, was he thinking of me above all else? That language is reserved for God alone. Christ gave his life ultimately and first for God, right? First above all. Now, why is this important? Because Beacon, I think you and I know it's hard to know in our hearts if our love is, is right, if we're loving well. And this question helps to clarify our decision. How do I know 
if in this act of love, if I'm just trying to please man, you know, I'll reply to this text. I will do as you say, but I'm just trying to get you off my back, right? Or how, how do I know if, if I'm loving, but it's really to protect my own reputation so that this person can think well of me so that I'm not seen as a bad friend? Or how do I know if I'm just loving this person for what he or she gives me? As a friend, this person gives me comfort, understanding, affirmation, makes me feel good about myself, listens to me. Well, it comes down to this. Am I loving this person because I love God? Because I want God to be glorified in this. And the final judge of our love is not other people, right? It's not you or it's not even me. First Corinthians four, Paul talks about being a faithful steward before God. And this applies to, the, to our love as well. He says this, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. That's what it comes down to um, when I choose to love a certain way. It is ultimately God who judges that, right? So Beacon, as we consider the shape of our love and the shape of Christ's love, is is this our love for one another? Is it first about God, his kingdom, what would please him? And that means I need to know his word more so that I know how to love. Is my love characterized by a cost to self, dying to self, even when it's inconvenient for me so that someone else could benefit? Is my love characterized by a love that risks, risks being hurt, risks being misunderstood? Or put it negatively, is my love characterized by self-protection, self-preservation? Or am I loving for gain, what I can get out of a relationship, out of church for myself? Is my love characterized by aloofness, a safe distance from people, unwillingness to move toward others, to get to know them and love them? And when I am in conversations with people, for example, am I more concerned about how they like me than how I can love this person? Now we know this kind of love is impossible in our strength. How can we love like this? Well, the last and final point here, love recognizes and receives God's love for us. Verse 34, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, in order to love, we need to be loved. And, but oftentimes we miss it. We miss how God is loving us. Uh, some of you might know um, Clarence Ty. Uh, he's a friend of mine, friend of me and Ruthann, he's married to Liz. Clarence is in residency 
at UCLA right now. I did not ask his permission to share this story, but I think it's okay. Um, I'll text him later. Back when he was in med school at Loma Linda, um, Ruthann and I went out there to hang out with Clarence and Liz in the Rendlands area. And so we got some food. I think it was a sandwich place. Um, and if you know Clarence, like, you know his personality. Um, so Clarence, you know, he's kind. And so he says, we got your meal. You know, he'll pay for us. <clears throat> and our response was, no, like, we'll, we'll pay. We, we can pay. You know, let us Venmo you. And then Clarence says, well, if you Venmo me, I'm going to Venmo you even more back. And then someone overheard us and said, man, I want a friend like that. You know, and Clarence was, was just being himself. He was being funny. Um, but in that moment for Ruthann and I, I mean, we needed to let him love us, right? We needed to receive that love, not to reject it. Well, in a similar way, I mean, God shows us his love every single day, even this very moment in countless ways. And the question is, are we going to recognize his love? And then are you going to receive it? But most importantly, the greatest demonstration of love God has already shown and giving his love, uh, son for us and his son giving his life for us at the cross. That's what we read in verse 34. Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So what makes this a new commandment? That's how Jesus talks about it. Well, we know that this command to love is not new, right? We see that in the Old Testament. That's the greatest commandment in Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We see in Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. So what makes it new is, yes, the example of Jesus, right? He sets the pattern of love. He gives his life. The God-man gives his life for us. That's what makes it new. But it's also a new context. This love happens in a new covenant community. It happens when believers who are given the spirit are enabled to love in this way. And this command to love is how we were designed to function as human beings human beings. We were designed to reflect as image bearers of God, the relationship of love between the father and the son. The new covenant community, the church is meant to display the love and unity that characterizes the triune God. And so how could Jesus, how could Jesus love like this? Love the way he did. Well, he rested in the love of the Father for him. And we we read in the Gospel of John, for example, chapter 3, verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And we read later in chapter 16, verse 32, Jesus is speaking, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you disciples will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. And Jesus rests in God's love for him. God is with him. God has given Jesus all that he needs. 
And in this chapter alone, we see more examples of how Jesus is resting in the Father's love for him. Verse two and four, Jesus says he's gonna depart out of this world to the Father. He's going back to God, the Father. In verse 32, he says this, if God is glorified in him, glorified in the son, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. This is the promise of God's glory that awaits Jesus through suffering. This is God's love for him. And so it is with us. How do we love the way Christ loved? Well, it's when we rest in God's love for us. It's when we rest in the promise, trust in his promise that God has given us all that we need. It's when we trust that God is with us. It's when we trust that God will glorify us. Love is impossible apart from recognizing and receiving God's love for us. Now, let me uh, conclude with this idea here in verse 23. John, the writer, John, the apostle, he describes himself this way. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So why, did, why does John refer to himself this way? Um, is this how he saw himself compared to the other disciples? Like Jesus loves me more than all the other disciples. No, it's not, it's not arrogance. It's a, it's a deep sense of how undeserving John was of the grace of Christ's love for him. As one commentator puts it, the way John refers to himself, this may be a quiet way of refusing to give even the impression of sharing a platform with Jesus. Just like John the Baptist earlier, John the apostle is only a voice. He's only a voice. It doesn't matter who the speaker is. What matters is what he's testifying to. What matters is his witness witnessing to Jesus's love. John 3.30, this is what John the Baptist said. He said, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. And this is how John, the apostle saw himself. It's Christ and his love and glory that matters. Now, is this how we, you and I understand ourselves? We are a disciple of Jesus, beloved, beloved by Christ. We are children beloved by God. In this message, we've examined the shape of love. Christ has plotted the way for us. He connects the dots for us. This is what love looks like. And we can only love this way because he first loved us, right? We can love as he loves only when we remember how Christ has loved us. This is how Christ has moved toward us. You know, not just he moved toward his disciples, he moves toward you. That's how he loved us when we were unlovely, when we were ungrateful to God for his many benefits. We were ignorant of him. We were indifferent to him. We didn't care about pleasing God. We didn't care 
about living for our creator who has all authority over us, we did not submit to him. And we were in love with the world. We were in love with the fleeting pleasures of life. We were in love with his gifts, forgetting and ignoring and rejecting and neglecting the giver. We were blind to our pride, to our self-love. And that's when he pursued us. And that's when he opened our eyes. That's how he has shown his patience with us. We were that one sheep out of a hundred that wandered away. Christ went after us and showed us a better way to life. Now, this is how Christ has pursued us. And this is then how we pursue one another in the church. And together, this is how we proclaim who God is. This is how we make the invisible God visible by our love for one another. And Beacon, Beacon, this is what we get to do, right? You and I, we get to keep growing uh, in love. We get to be more like Christ in love and we get to know more of his love through, through one another. And so that's the heart behind, you know, why we're gonna move to Sundays. But that, that's just a tiny expression of that, right? I mean, this is what our whole lives are about, about knowing and displaying the love of Christ. So tonight even, or Sunday, or next weekend at retreat, or Sunday beacon, or the rest of what church community looks like for you, let us, let the love of Christ change us and our community so that we might reflect more of his glory to a watching world. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. And God, if we were to pause and just think of the many ways that you are even at this present moment loving us, through your word, through the church, through friends, through our bodies, God, through life, Lord. God, we cannot help but be grateful. Our hearts filled with thanksgiving for who you are. Father, we want to grow in love. Help us, Lord. Help us, God, to be loving just as Christ is and was to us. Father, and I pray that through our small groups, you would continue to deepen and strengthen that work, changing us to be those who die to ourselves daily, those who lay down our lives for one another. Help us do that, Lord. And it is only by your power and grace that this is possible. So we ask all this in your son's precious name. Amen.